know what sitcom that song is from? Laverne and Shirley. I remember that song from growing up. Laverne and Shirley was a show about two friends and roommates who work as bottle cappers in a brewery in 60s Milwaukee. Now, you've probably noticed that we've used various sitcom jingles throughout this sermon series. Even the graphics of this series is based on a sitcom. And all of this is intentional because all of the best sitcoms revolve around friendship. It's why we're drawn to them. Okay, in Seinfeld, you've got Kramer, George, Elaine, and Jerry. Beverly Hills 90210, Brandon, Kelly, Dylan, Brenda, Donna, David, and Steve, and who can forget Andrea Zuckerman. The New Girl, okay, great show. Winston, Nick, Jess, Cece, and Schmidt. Cheers, Woody, Carla, Norm, Cliff, Frazier, Sam, Coach, Rebecca, Diane, and then, of course, Friends. Ross, Chandler, Joey, Monica, Rachel, and Phoebe. You could probably say all those names alongside of me saying those names. We're drawn to these shows. It, even as I showed you or read the characters' names, you probably have moments or memories from these sitcoms and the friendships that were formed. We long for meaningful friendships. We long for meaningful relationships. Have you ever been out to dinner with someone or a group of people and someone tells you that there's something in your teeth and we immediately lower our head and then cover our mouth in shame, right? And then we kind of go to town on trying to remove that one little piece of food, whatever it is, and then we look up, regain composure, and we smile and we say, is it gone? And you know you just moved it. They're like, no. And so they kind of point at it and they kind of say, it, no, it's right, it's right there. And then they reach their hand towards your mouth. And, I'm, and you're like, stop. Were you gonna go put your finger in my mouth right now? Okay, I think I've got it. Or even worse, you've got something on your face and someone tries to do the lick and rub. Okay, they lick their thumb and now they want to smidge something off your face with their thumb? No way, okay? I'm not gonna let you lick my face. Or have you ever been driving home after hanging out with a bunch of friends and then you look in the mirror and you realize you've got a piece of food in your teeth? How long has it been there? Why didn't someone tell me? I would rather have put your finger in my mouth, friend, than no one tells me at all. Now, pointing out when someone has something in their teeth is one thing, but what happens when we disagree with someone's life choices. What if they don't have a piece of spinach in their teeth, but they're doing something that we believe is harmful or destructive? What is the role of the Christian when we disagree with someone's behavior? A common Christian response to this question is, well, we speak the truth in love, okay? That phrase is found in Ephesians chapter 4. Let's explore it together. Verse 14, Then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people in their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body 
of him who is the head, that is Christ. From him, the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. Speaking the truth in love. For some reason, in my experience, when this phrase is used, rarely does the person hearing it feel loved. Instead, it's most often used as a way to convince someone that they are being loved even when it doesn't feel that way. It's not often used of someone just heavily invested in co-laboring with someone in the midst of their struggle, but rather as a way to lob hurtful opinions, walk away and feel guilt-free because they did their Christian duty of telling them that they're wrong in a loving way. No need for me to love sacrificially or to do anything of actual substance for this person. My duty is to tell them that I'm right and they're wrong in a nice way. Is that what the Bible means when it says, speak the truth in love? Now, we actually don't have an English word that fits this Greek word, speak the truth in love. Our best attempt to get at what the Apostle Paul is saying here would be, truthing the truth in love. It is an active lifestyle thing, not just something that we say. Uh, the emphasis is on how we live, not what we think. Jesus is always pointing us to this truth, and the truth is how we live is always going to be more important than how we think or what we think. When the Apostle Paul says, instead, we speak the truth in love, the word truth here in context isn't about facts, factual information. It's about being honest. The verse before condemns false teachers who are lying to people. He says, in contrast, we speak the truth in love. We don't lie. We're honest. And we always act in love. Do we tell the truth by our lives? Now, this has a little different meaning than I'm just telling it like it is. I'm sorry that you disagree, but you're not disagreeing with me, you're disagreeing with God. How the phrase speaking the truth in love is often used reveals the assumption that God's word and my opinion about the interpretation of it are the same thing. They are not. You know, what I have found helpful in situations like these in my own friendships is one word, perhaps. Perhaps is the space between I know and I don't know. And it is where we find relationship and growth in our friendships. It is the place of proper humility. This perhaps doesn't say I'm an idiot, nor does it say, you're an idiot. It says, let's talk further because perhaps you're right or perhaps I am. It fosters a relationship. It grows a relationship. As Christians, we often use the phrase speaking the truth in love because we believe that people change when we tell them they're sinning and living their life wrong. It doesn't work. 
you know this is true. If we were truly interested in transforming someone else's life, it will not happen by sharing our unwarranted opinion. Now, I understand why we Christians often do this. And at the root of it is, is fear. That if we don't tell people that they're wrong, and if they don't feel the discomfort of our judgment, then they'll have no incentive to change. But that's not how change works. Not in the Bible, not in psychology, not in real life. It's amazing to me that we're still convinced that telling people that they're wrong is the way to bring about real change in the world, despite the fact that it almost never works. I have seen hundreds of lives, maybe thousands changed by human beings who have shown up to love without judgment, without feeling compelled to speak the truth in love. I have seen almost no lives changed when we begin with, I'm just gonna tell you how it is in a nice way. The band Mumford & Sons had this song called Roll Away Your Stone. It's a great song. And there's one stanza that really perfectly illustrates what I'm trying to get at. And it's basically a brief retelling of the parable of the prodigal son told by Jesus in Luke 15. A parable that certainly speaks to me regularly. The stanza's last two lines go like this. It's not the long walk home that will change this heart, but the welcome I receive with every start. Somehow in American Christianity, we have become convinced that it is in fact, the long walk home that will change people's hearts. But it's not. It's the welcome that people receive with love that gives someone that new start. Psychologist Carl Rogers said it succinctly. The curious paradox is that when I accept myself, as I am, then I change. Notice the key to Ephesians 4 is the phrase, in love. If you have no relationship with someone and you've never demonstrated that you have love for them in real practical ways, then zip it. They don't care about your opinion. And also, your life isn't truly showing the truth of your words. Let me tell you succinctly, what I am trying to say. Unless a person has invited you into their life to offer advice on how to live, then we are allowed one opinion of them and that they were worth Jesus dying for, that they have unsurpassable worth, and we reflect that worth by how we think about them, by how we speak about them, and how we treat them. That's the role of a Christian. Many Christians don't do that. Here's a Bible verse for you. It's going to convict you. No. Speaking the truth in love should instead mean we've earned the right to share our opinions and values with people over time. But if we haven't demonstrated real intangible love for someone, we cannot tell the truth no matter what comes out of our mouths. It is an impossibility because truth is love. We can give our opinion, which may or may not be correct. Heck, we could even throw like facts at people. But if we are not 
in love with the person in front of us and are not demonstrating love in real and practical ways. I would argue that we are not telling the truth as the Bible presents truth, okay? Rant over, okay? I've had a problem for a long time with how Christians speak the truth in love. And it's the first time I've maybe ever addressed it, okay? So perhaps, let's be better Christians. Perhaps, let's be better friends. I remember the first time my daughter started to crawl as a baby. At first, she would get on all fours, and then she'd kind of swing her arms like this. Like, her body really wouldn't move, and she was just trying to figure things out. And then Sarah are like, come on, sis, you can do it. Come on. Okay, look at you. You're a big girl. Come on, sis. And after a couple of days of the arm swing, Sarah put one of Dex's monster trucks in front of her, just a few feet away from Ivy. And that was all it took. She, cra she crawled right over there and grabbed the monster truck. Okay, we were thrilled. We cheered for her. We showed her off like, like she was a dog. Like we're in the grocery store. A stranger says, what a cute baby. And I kind of pull out a monster truck from my pocket. I'm like, would you like to see her crawl? She knows how to crawl, okay? I pick her up, put her on the ground. You're a big girl, sis. Go get it. It was the encouragement of Dex's monster truck and of mom and dad that propelled our daughter into a life of motion. We live in a world of daily challenges and for us to venture beyond where we have been before, we need the good words and encouragement of others. Everyone needs encouragement. Why is it that in a race, the people cheering on the sides make a difference? Like whenever they interview the runner after winning, they almost always say, when I saw or heard the cheering, it helped me keep going. It gave me a second win. Why, when your physical body has been pushed to the limits and you literally have nothing left in the tank and then you see someone in the crowd you read a sign that says, great job. You hear your friend or your coach spurring you on. Why does that give you something that you didn't have before? Several years ago, I went to my niece, Italia's first cross country race. And I remember watching her like for, take that first turn around the track. And I thought, this is crazy. She's winning because we didn't think she was fast. Mostly because she kind of ran like a T-Rex, okay? Kind of like this. And then she's winning. That and, and, and she's sprinting down the last little bit. And we're like, go, sis. That, that, that little blonde girl is going to catch you. We're about 100 yards from the finish line. And this little T-Rex is just going as fast as she can. I remember it vividly. I ran alongside her the last 100 meters. I sprinted alongside that tiny T-Rex yelling, go sis, go. That little blonde girl's right behind you. And then she won. I was so happy. Uh, tears may have came down my face. Now it could have been from physical exhaustion or I was just so thrilled. My son did cross country for the first time this year and I had a very similar experience. Okay, I'm in better shape now though. Uh, the beautiful thing about encouragement is that it doesn't just help the person you're encouraging, it helps the encourager. Our words 
bless the blessee and they bless the blesser. Encouragement is a dominant theme in the New Testament. You see, the Apostle Paul was obsessed with building up the local churches, and he realized that there was only so much that he could do. So part of his strategy was to transfer his concern to others. We see this in Colossians 2. My purpose is that they may be encouraged in heart and united in love so that they may have the full riches of complete understanding in order that they may know the mystery of God, namely Christ. Colossians 4, I am sending him to you for the express purpose that you may know about our circumstances and that he may encourage your hearts. 1 Thessalonians 4, therefore encourage each other with these words. 1 Thessalonians 5, therefore encourage one another and build each other up just as in fact you are doing. Hebrews 10, let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but let us encourage one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. I mean, I wish I could understand what these New Testament authors were trying to say. It's simple. Everybody loves encouragement. Everybody loves words of affirmation. If you've ever read the five love languages, Words of affirmation scores really high for me. Encouragement goes a long way. Uh, I'll do something around the house. Now, I don't only do it for the encouragement, but I do really love the words. So I carry something that's too heavy for Sarah. I grunt a little extra. Or I can wipe the sweat off my brow. And in a way I'm saying, notice me, praise me. I'm waiting for a thank you or my man's so strong. Everybody loves to receive encouragement, but we often struggle to live a life that sends encouragement. Are there people in your life, friends, that maybe the Spirit of God is encouraging you to encourage even now? A seminary professor was vacationing with his wife in Gatlinburg, Tennessee. One morning, they were eating a breakfast at their little restaurant, hoping to enjoy a quiet family meal. And while they were waiting, they noticed a distinguished-looking, uh, white-haired man moving from table to table, visiting with the guests. The presser leaned over to his wife and whispered, I hope he doesn't come over here. Sure enough, the man came over to their table. Where are you folks from? He said in a friendly voice. Oklahoma, they answered. Great to have you here in Tennessee. What do you do for a living? Well, I teach at a seminary, he replied. Okay, so you teach preachers how to preach, do you? Well, I've got a great story for you. And with that, the gentleman pulled up a chair and sat down with the couple. And the professor kind of groaned as he thought to himself, great, just what I need, another preacher story. The man started. See that mountain over there, pointing out the restaurant window? He said, not far from that base of that mountain, there was a boy born to an unwed mother. He had a hard time growing up because every place he went, he was always asked the same question. Hey boy, who's your daddy? Whether he was at school, in the grocery store, the drugstore, people would ask the same question. Who's your daddy? He would hide at recess and lunchtime from other students. He would avoid going into stores because that question 
hurt him so badly. When he was about 12, a new preacher came to his little country church. He would always go in late, slip out early to avoid the question, who's your daddy? One day, the new preacher said the benediction so fast, he was caught off guard and he had to walk out with the crowd. And just about the time he got the back door, the new preacher, not knowing anything about him, put his hands on his shoulder and said, son, who's your daddy? And the whole church got quiet. He could feel that every eye on the church was looking at him. Now, everyone would finally know the answer to the question. Now, this new preacher, he sensed the situation around him and used discernment that only the Holy Spirit could give. And he said to that scared little boy, wait a minute, I know who you are. Now I see the family resemblance. You're a child of God. And with that, he patted the boy on his head and said, boy, you've got a great inheritance. Go and claim it. With that, the boy smiled for the first time in a long time and walked out that door a changed person. He was never the same again. Whenever anybody asked him, who's your daddy? He would just say, I'm a child of God. The distinguished gentleman got up from the table and told the couple, isn't that a great story? And the professor indeed responded, it really was a great story. And as the man turned to leave, he said, you know, if that new preacher hadn't told me that I was one of God's children, I probably never would have amounted to anything. And he walked away. One of the biggest reasons that God has given us the church is so that we might be encouraged, spurred on, built up, that we might speak the truth in love, that we might show the truth by how we treat people, by being the kind of friend that Jesus is to us. Thanksgiving is this Thursday. Are there some people in your life that you need to invite? For some of us, does Thanksgiving need to become Friendsgiving? Will there be some old friends in town that you haven't seen in a while for the holidays and you need to go to coffee with? I don't know, but you probably do. So let's be like that old man at that breakfast shop in Tennessee. Let's be sensitive to where and to whom the Spirit might lead us to. I'll close this sermon series with a poignant poem. I don't know the author. Around the corner, I have a friend in this great city that has no end. Yet days go by and weeks rush on, and before I know it, a year is gone. And I never see my old friend's face, for life is a swift and terrible race. He knows I like him just as well as in the days when I rang his bell. And he rang mine, we were younger then, and now we are busy, tired men. Tired with playing a foolish game, tired with trying to make a name. Tomorrow, I say, I will call on Jim, just to show that I'm thinking of him. But tomorrow comes and tomorrow goes, and the distance between us grows and grows. Around the corner, yet miles away, here's a telegram, sir. Jim died today. And that's what we get and deserve in the end, around the corner, a vanished friend. 
May it not be so. May our friendships encourage us, but may we be the encouragement in our friendships. God, help us to be the kind of friends you've called us to be, the kind of friend that you are to us that shows agape love. God, help us to speak the truth in love by how we live and by how we love. We need you in this, Jesus. Give us the wisdom to what, of what to share and what not to share. But God, move us to practical acts of kindness and love in our friendships. Help us to take the first step. We need you in Jesus' name. Amen. We want to thank you so much for joining us online at Prodigal Church Fresno. Uh, next week, we begin our Christmas series leading up into the celebration of the birth of our Savior, and we can't wait. We hope you have an amazing Thanksgiving. Grace and peace in the Middle East.